0: so today i'm joined by jane woods from changing people um it's really lovely to meet you jane thank you for taking the time to talk with me today um it's obviously international women's day on the 8th of march and we'd really love to hear some valuable insights and kind of research that you've come across in your career as a consultant and trainer and um, helping businesses to support women with confidence building and creating gender balance within organisations. So can we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself, your background and how you've come to be doing
1: what you're doing? Hi, thank you. Well, an easy question to begin with. We're on my specialist subject. <laughs> so um, my background is I grew up in a very working class area down in Kent and i um, Aspirations for girls were pretty limited. I'm 67, so I was born in 55. So it was quite a different world then. Then when I went off to um, university, I was studying, initially studying sociology and read, read quite a bit around educational um, options for, for girls and <laughs> discovered, to my horror, that um, girls had to get a higher pass rate than boys because more boys than girls passed exams so to to mitigate against that they upped the pass rate for girls so girls basically had to do better even at that stage and I think that's probably when I first began began to be very interested in sort of gender inequality really we didn't call it that then (laughs) I can't remember what we called it then but so I went on post-university and I I was a social worker and I worked in Bermondsey in London and always been very passionate about but having equality. But interestingly, I, I suppose I began to morph into working much more with women because issues for women seem to be much stronger. So in my social work career, I've I've crossed all all areas of working in social work. So. I've worked in psychiatric hospitals, I've worked in prisons, I've um, been a probation officer, and, and I've worked in hospitals and I've done childcare and abuse work. And as part of that, i worked with lots of women's groups and ended up at some point, I ended up in senior management roles. And my last kind of proper job was merging health and social services And that was um, was quite a while ago. We're still trying to get that right and it's still not happening. And I'm sure you've (laughs) been impacted by that in housing as well. So, um, and I, part of that role as being the project lead for that, I was so um, bothered really that all the admin and support staff got left out. Now, the admin and support staff were 98% women. And all the and social work is something like 80 percent at that point was about 80 percent women. But most of the managers were male and making decisions. And we were not carrying on both sides of NHS and social services. We were not carrying admin and support staff with us. And they I hate using words like empowered, but I think I'm going to have to use it. They weren't really empowered to speak up and have a voice in this transition process and yet they were absolutely key as admin staff always are to any initiative working um, but not recognized so I started doing stuff with them um, both both social services and health admin and support workers together only women and and one day I suddenly realized that that was so much more fulfilling than my day job when I didn't have to go around spouting the company line and pretending everything was working when it clearly wasn't working. Yeah. Um, and so in my late 40s, I left and and set up Changing People. But it it kind of shows that this issue about confidence women is not unique. It runs across cultures, across across the world, really.
0: Brilliant. So I mean, obviously, all that experience, you've already referenced some of the kind of systematic issues that we need to overcome. Um, but in terms of other insights and research, can you talk us through the different types of experience that you've you've come across with regards to confidence, I guess, more than anything from, from a woman's perspective?
1: One of the things that's interesting, I don't know if any of you, any of your listeners saw something a few years ago, there was a programme on the BBC, and it was called I think it was BBC Two, called No More Boys and Girls. Fascinating programme. I've written about it on the website. In fact, almost, she says, in a shameless attempt to drive people to read her website. Almost everything I talk about today, you can find the, the sources for on the website if you like to know where the research comes from. But they did an experiment in primary schools on the Isle of Wight. And there was a, a Swedish, because Scandinavian countries are they're still not great but they're much better at us than addressing mm-hmm. issues like this so there was a there was somebody from the swedish education system and somebody an expert from this country and then a presenter and they went in and looked what was going on in the schools in this particular school, and this lovely teacher, who um, Graham Andre, who I've come to know and talk to quite a bit, and who has now become a champion for gender equality in education and and speaks all around the country, he allowed himself to be recorded and he thought he was doing a pretty okay job. What the programme showed is that the discrimination between boys and girls at age seven was huge. And the girls were asked at the beginning of this session, who do you think is the most confident? Uh, who do you think will go on to have the best jobs and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and obviously in language appropriate for their age range. And they all said almost without exception, boys. And then they asked the boys the same question. Who do you think is the most confident blubber? And the boys, again, all said us, we are. And so they set about trying to address this over the course of a year. It's absolutely fascinating. I don't even know if it's still available, but there are snippets on YouTube if you can get to have a look at it. So they looked at, for example, they looked at all the books in the school. 80% of the books had to be got rid of because they portrayed women, girls, in a quite sort of, what word can I use, namby-pamby light, They were all princesses. They were all being rescued. They were all in pink. All of that nonsense. 80 percent. They had to get rid of 80 percent of the books. They also quite very interestingly worked with the parents. Now, the parents were fascinated, most of them. And and obviously they were a self-selecting group, the ones that were prepared to be to be worked with. This is quite a working class class community we weren't talking you know highly educated people who would say all the right things um and so that so one of the things they did is looked at how the children were dressed and they took the whole series of t-shirts that kids were wearing in school so the girls had lovely little sparkling sequiny ones saying i'm a little princess the boys mm-hmm. said i'm trouble and they <laughs> <laughs> yeah It was so classic. And they rewrote those to say what they really meant. So I'm a little princess meant, oh, I forget what they put, but it would be something like, um, I'm waiting for someone to rescue me. I'm passive or something like that. I'm trouble meant I have to live up to being difficult or I'm allowed to whatever. And when the parents saw these, they were horrified. They'd never considered what messages they were giving out. They also went in their homes and looked at all the gendered toys that there were. It seems, as you say, that it,
0: it starts very early in schools, but from a workplace perspective, if we're truly to create that diverse and inclusive workplace, what changes do you think we can make from a day-to-day perspective at, at that level? Obviously, we need to tackle it from a school point of view yeah. in, in yeah. early years, but where we are in, in our working world, what can we do?
1: Well, I mentioned the school thing really to say that that, because that is part of the systemic problem, really. And so all of us are fighting against that, men and women. And importantly, this is not, I don't think this is not a women's issue. And I I know I'm teaching my grandma to suck eggs because I've had a look at your excellent website and I know you're doing a lot of, of really good work in this area. But it is an issue for everybody. So I don't know whether you have women groups or things like that going on I am surprisingly not a great fan of women's groups because I think they can often exist in organizations almost as a little pat on the head for women and then suddenly it becomes a women's issues a women's issue that they have to deal with or women have to change or women have to do something but what we actually know is that organizations that fully embrace gender equality do better on almost every metric and that actually men, particularly young men, really like the changes that come in to address the the issues of equality and, and equity, because they benefit from it as well. Because we're both trapped in this, you know, we've, both, we've all come, both genders, I'm told, well, all genders, we've all come through this system now. And we all carry that baggage with us. And most of the time, we don't we don't really know so training is very important in terms of understanding this and, and education and then um, in terms of of the workplace there are lots of I mean obviously there are lots of very standard things that you can do to look at how gender equal you know pay is an obvious one what's happening with pay um but Interestingly, I I also do a course called Speak Up, which looks at all the research, proper research differences that exist between gender. And one of the questions I ask the women on that course is, if the world had been designed by women, what do you think would be different? And I think that's that's part of the problem that organizations face is that the world has been designed by men for men. Obviously, we were women were not around in any great numbers. I mean, women, working class women have always worked, but they've had jobs, not careers. So, so that's very different. So most women were not involved in how our working practices were set up. So in terms of um, changing that world of work, it it goes right back to the very basics of like, why do we work nine to five? Now, obviously, that is changing and the pandemic has changed that. And it'll be really interesting to see how that pans out. And and you look like you're working from home and you obviously have. Um, there's good and bad in that. And it will be interesting to see what impact that has. And what we do know actually is that working from home has had anecdotally, because the research has not been done properly, has had more of an impact on women's careers than men's um, because they still do lots of other stuff while they're working from home and they miss out on on being visible w- within the workplace. So it is this kind of thing about challenging how the world of work is constructed right, right back to the beginning, really.
0: Absolutely, thank you. And I think, yeah, you you've covered lots of important points there about what organisations can do, and and certainly not making it specifically for women only to talk about this matter. I think that's a really important point from a kind of research and and experience perspective in your career. Who who is it that inspires you,
1: and why? I I did a talk. I had to do a talk recently um, in Warwick for, on women. For women in logistics which are they're an amazing group of women in a very male dominated world and i i took as my theme women that i knew that had inspired me and um first on the list of course was my mum I had to put my mum I'm going to choose three if that's okay of course yeah (laughs) so my mum um she had no formal education she had no idea what I was doing most of my life she'd tell everyone I'd got 10 a levels or something you know because she just I haven't got 10 a levels by the way um But she was always sort of very sort of proud and supportive. And I always used to think it was my dad that had had a big impact on me because he was so pro-education. Yes. So my mum has has been was quite an inspiration And her. One of her first jobs, she was a clippy. She also thought that most men were useless. (laughs) (laughs) Then she was my dad. Um, But I think the thing she taught me was resilience, really. It was, yes, the world is not fair. And yes, this rubbish is going to happen all the time but you have to, you just have to carry on. The other person um, who is still alive is is my aunt Anne, and she's 95, and she is still very much of the moment. And she has taught me loads about growing older. It's fascinating as a woman, and I speak as someone who's 67 now, I'm beginning to experience this, much to my surprise. I call it femagism. You know, there, it, it's, there are certain, most isms we've you know, we know are wrong, <laughs> even if they still happen. Ageism is still sort of acceptable, you know, so we talk about stupid old people and, and so forth. And my my Aunt Anne is an absolute um, role model in how to grow old. She never talks about in my day we used to do this or, you know, or criticises what what is happening. She's on it all the time and and loves it. And and just loves living and is still living, you know, as well as Mm -hmm. she can at nine to five. And the other woman I'm um, you may not have heard of that I have a lot of time for is Dame Mary Beard. I don't know if you. Yeah. So so anyone who doesn't know, Mary Beard is an academic. She was um, I think she's just retired, but she was a professor in classics at Cambridge. And I first encountered her when she was on TV doing some, some years ago now, but maybe about 10 years ago, and a rather um, unkind, waspish male journalist who shall remain nameless, he since died actually, wrote a horrible piece about how on earth could she go on TV looking like that with all her long grey hair, and she'd clearly made no effort to sort herself out. And it was just dreadful. So I, I have a blog. I blogged about this. I was incensed. We're exactly the same age, Mary Beard and I. <laughs> and through the auspices of Twitter, we ended up speaking. I've interviewed her several times. And the thing I, I love about Mary is she gets what all women on social media get, an awful lot of flag. So obviously, inadvertently, this guy enhanced her career because he drew attention and people started looking and then she became much more mainstream. And she has never done anything about her long grey hair. She just is herself entirely. Yeah, pumped right, in yeah. her own skin. Um, so it what she does though is she engages with people who say awful stuff to her. And she asks, she doesn't get annoyed, she just asks them questions about why and then it turned out that one chap she knew his mum it was like I know your (laughs) mum and he apologized to her and because I'd been part of this sort of Twitter conversation I also got an apology from this person Um, and she does actually I think change people's perceptions because of how she handles it Um, and she does it with dignity and grace and she's She totally doesn't give a fig about what people say about her, about her appearance. She cares very much about her topic and her subject. And I often quote her. She's written several books. But one of the things that she says is, we have not yet learned to hear the authority in women's voices. And that is so true. And it's very true that it's we, because nothing I'm, I hope nothing I say feels like I'm attacking men or having a go at men because I truly am not. And that we is that women as much as men, we have all been conditioned and socialized to hear and believe certain things. And most of us still, even, and I will include myself in this, despite everything I know, I have to catch myself sometimes, we hear a male voice and we hear authority. Men, actually, there is some research to show that men do not even really hear women's voices sometimes. But the research shows that this actually happens. This does happen in meetings. It's actually true. And and sometimes that is because women as well as men have not learned, as Mary Beard says, to hear women's voices properly. It's fascinating stuff. So
0: Jane, you've given us some really kind of Great ideas and examples of how um, kind of organisations can support women and men to kind of address um, diversity and gender inclusion, etc. But in terms of specific services that organisations offer, how can how can we kind of help support gender equality through the services? Um, for example, in housing,
1: I'm not sure how different it would be than the general stuff about actually um, raising awareness, you know, supporting Mm -hmm. women. There was, um, maybe just mention, I don't know if you read this at the time, but there was an initiative in the Obama government when um, he appointed quite a lot of women into the American equivalent of of a cabinet, and um, they called it amplification. They decided that they would amplify women's voices and that they would they would take this on. So, you know, I mentioned that women routinely get talked over by men. And, and this is true. There's research to show that people think women talk too much. And actually, women think women talk too much, or most men think women talk too much. The reality is they don't. We don't. Women don't. If anything, men talk more than women. This isn't the world of work obviously we we've not had researchers at home <laughs> checking yeah. how people speak in the domestic environment that would be a bit weird. But you know sitting and this is research across all the research I'm talking about is across all of the western world so north america and europe looking at meetings and observing it. And as people leave the meeting, they say, who taught the most? And we women say, we did. Who taught the most? The men say, the women did. And the researchers say, well, actually, you know, the men did.
0: The men. Interesting.
1: So what the Obama um, group of women did, they decided they would amplify women's voices. So they would not let women's contributions be lost in meetings. Um, and so when they spoke, they would either repeat what they'd said, or if, and, and you know, even the best of men, Obama included, you know, can st- uh, we've, they've been socialized not to hear, as I was saying before, we'll talk over women, they would interrupt and say, actually, um, I believe so-and-so said something before, and we should go back to that comment. So there, mm-hmm. so there are smaller things like that. It is also true that women interrupt men I'm sorry, men interrupt women all the time. Women do not interrupt men. But there's one um way of mitigating against that. But what happens in meetings and seminars in in the world of academia is if whoever is chairing asks a man to speak first, women do not speak in equal numbers to men. But if this relatively simple thing of asking a woman to speak first in a meeting, um, you know, when you're taking questions or at the floor, then women contribute in equal numbers in that meeting. And it's the longer women wait to speak in a meeting, the less likely they are to speak up. So simple things like that are, are quite useful. There's a really interesting book and it's called Duels and Duets. And he says, women are trained to duet. And it's not because we're nicer or or better or anything like that. It's just how how things have evolved that That we actually tend to take turns in speaking and, and we credit other people's work and so on and men are trained conditioned to duel and a lot of the processes in work so for example recruiting people are based on this relatively adversarial way of recruiting be better than somebody else rather than just trying to find out how good a person is in themselves and how suitable they are for that role
0: so i think just to finalize really is there one message that you'd like us to take away from today i
1: think the the message is you never get there it's a it's always a work in progress and and so we think you know we think we've got somewhere and things are changing and then inevitably work gets hard the day-to-day grind takes over and we kind of slide back Mm -hmm. and and the other the other message I'd give to, I don't know if you're familiar with the principles of a priest of inquiry and a priest of inquiry is um it's a, it's a method of managing change. And obviously it's a time of great change for all sorts of reasons. But if we're talking about wanting to improve gender equality, we are asking people to, for some people, significant belief changes. And the princi- one of the principles of a priest of inquiry, which I love, is Don't focus on all the stuff that's not working. Have a look at what is working. And clearly in your organization, loads of things are working well. And quite often we'll get focused on, oh, we must be better at, in this case, gender equality or equity or whatever. Um, And actually loads of stuff will be working really well in your organization. And actually maybe asking your teams or individuals, what is it that works well? What are we doing well? A, it gives it a much more positive focus, and people are more likely to engage in that. Um, but then, actually, you simply do more of that, and it will crowd out some of the other stuff.
0: Fantastic. That's that's. I think that's a really kind of inspiring way to 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 round up today. Because we don't always want need to focus on the negative. I think focusing on the positive inspires and and kind of you know, demonstrates the good work that is happening. So that's that's fantastic. Thank you, Jane.